What do cliff ledges, train tracks, bridges, and tall buildings have in common? Well, they are places where over 300 people have died over the last seven years while taking a selfie. The sad irony here is overwhelming. Social media has given birth to the look at me generation. With selfies, we are able to project exactly the image we want others to see. We don't publish the unflattering or the boring, do we? No, we want to be seen as valuable, relevant, funny, and attractive. By contrast, Jesus formed his church to be the look at others generation, where we are more concerned with our neighbor than we are our own image. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He said, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So much about being Jesus' disciples is about getting outside of ourselves and into the lives of others. Not just other Christians, but people from every walk of life. Christ wants our energy, effort, and our focus to be on our neighbor. He wants it to be outward, not inward. The exact opposite of the selfie. You know, if all we do here at Life's Journey is get together in our holy huddles and read the Bible, we are not making disciples the way Christ did. Last week we saw, in the, as we started our new series on Nehemiah, that if we're going to go about the task of rebuilding, rebuilding anything, rebuilding our church, rebuilding our marriages, rebuilding our relationships, rebuilding our nation, our world after a pandemic, we must do with the heart of a servant. We must be outward focused and not be so self-consumed with our own problems and our own needs, but with uh, the problems and the needs of others. Now, the passage this week is going to take up on that same thing, on that same theme. So last week was really part one. This week is part two. Now, last week we saw Nehemiah make a shocking request to his pagan king boss. A shocking request. <laughs> he asked for permission to leave for a year to go and rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem. And he asked his king to pay for it. And then the king gave an even more shocking response. He said yes. He allowed Nehemiah to leave, to go a, a thousand miles away to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and the king agreed to pay for everything that he needed. So, now what? Well, that's what we're going to look at. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, and look at verses 7 through 20. Now, Nehemiah is kind of right there. If you have your Bible, it's kind of right in the middle of the Old Testament. Uh, but it actually is the last book chronologically. This is essentially the end of the Old Testament. Uh, and if you don't have your Bible with you, it will, it will be at ljc.life. Uh, and also it will be on the screen if you can, if you can see it. Uh, and instead of reading the whole thing at the moment, we're just going to take it kind of verse by verse since it's kind of longer. Uh, so let's just look at uh, verse 7 together. Verse 7. 
This is Nehemiah speaking. He says, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. So this passage will show us, you know, what it might look like to be a servant. You hear the, you hear the, the phrase, hey, you know, let's not be a selfie generation. Let's be an other's generation. Let's be servants to our neighbor and to our enemies. But what does that look like? What does it look like to be a person who truly serves God and others? Well, this is an amazing text to show us. And so it's going to give us a few characteristics of, of a servant of God, what a servant of God actually looks like. And so number one is shown here in verse 7, and it's that, it's that God's servant prepares. God's servant prepares. Now, over the years, I've heard so many people say they want to do something great for God. They say, oh, Dustin, I want to do something amazing. I want to do something big for God. It's amazing. Nobody wants to do something small for God. <laughs> I just want to do something small for God. No, everybody says, I want to do something great, something big. They say, I want to be a missionary. You know, I want, to, I want to go build an orphanage overseas. You know, I want to do something big. And I say, oh, man, that's great. That is amazing. What's your plan? And most of the time they'll say, well, I don't really have a plan. I'm just going to play it by ear. I'm just going to go by faith. I'm just going to do it by faith. Okay. Good luck with that. Nehemiah had faith too. You don't think Nehemiah had faith? Of course he did. But Nehemiah was not without a plan. Yes, he wanted to do something big for God, but he was okay with planning. It's not a sin to plan. It's not, it's not a sin to, to look ahead. It's not a sin to have a calendar where you write things on and, and think about the future and, and steps to get there. It's okay. That's wisdom. It's not a lack of faith. It's wisdom. Uh, notice here in verse 7 that Nehemiah knew he needed certain letters. You notice that? He asked for certain letters. Now, what, are, what is he talking about? These uh, letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates. Well, these are essentially his passport. He's got to have the, these letters to travel between um, one nation and another. And he's going a long way, traveling a thousand miles. And so he needs, he needs a passport, <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, you might say, hey, I want to go to the Middle East to preach the gospel. Hallelujah. Amen. You got a passport? No. I was just going to go by faith. Okay, I can't wait for you to tell that to the TSA. I'm just traveling by faith. <laughs> Let's see what, they, see what they have to say about that. Look, Nehemiah's head is not in the clouds. You guys have met a, uh, maybe a lot of religious folks, and maybe a lot of church folks. Their heads are in the clouds. Uh, and, but Nehemiah's head is not in the clouds. He's extremely spiritual, obviously, uh, but he's not so spiritual that he neglects to plan, that he neglects a passport. <laughs> he knows he needs tangible things, and he plans for them. Uh, now, he knows he not only needs papers, uh, he, but he also knows that he needs supplies. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, it's, he says uh, to, the, to the king, he says, And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Right, so what is he talking about here? Well, Nehemiah, he's going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, he's going to uh, rebuild the citadel gates, and he's going to build a home for himself. So you know what he needs? Wood. <laughs> he needs wood. He needs a lot of lumber. Can't do any of those things without a ton of lumber, right? So now, 
It's interesting, Nehemiah is not a construction worker. He is not a construction worker. He's a cupbearer. So how in the world does he know who Asaph is? And how does he know how much lumber that he needs? Because Nehemiah did his homework. Nehemiah has planned for what he needed for his task ahead. Now, because Nehemiah did his homework, he was ready when the king said yes. He didn't have to mumble and stumble around and say, when the king said, hey, yeah, you can go, what do you need? He didn't say, oh, I'm just going by faith. He had a ready answer for everything the king asked him because he had planned ahead. He had a calendar in front of him. And he said, well, yeah, here's, here's what I'm looking at here, king, and here's all the things that I need, which you would assume probably impressed the king. But he was ready. He had a ready answer for everything because he had planned. Yes, Nehemiah fasted. Yes, Nehemiah prayed continuously for four months. Continuously, yes. But as he was praying, as he was fasting, he was also planning. You want to do something great for God? Amen. Amen. Do it. You need a plan, though. If you want to rebuild your marriage, if, you want to, if we want to rebuild Life's Journey Church, we need a plan. We can't just say, ah, we're doing it by faith. Well, hallelujah, we will do it by faith, but we also need a plan along with that. Now, one crazy thing about all this lumber Nehemiah asked for is who owns the lumber yard? The king does. Yeah, the king owns the lumber yard. This is incredible to me. When God wants to rebuild, nothing can stop him. Nothing can stop him. I mean, look at, look at this. This is all God. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 again. This is absolutely all God. Look at the end of verse 8. He says, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Because, he's not saying because, oh, the king was such a nice guy. Or, oh man, I was just so smooth when I, when I gave this presentation to the king. No. Nehemiah knows this was all God. This was all God. Here we have God sending Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem's broken walls. And he's, think about this, he's using a pagan king to pay for it. He's using the very man that commanded the walls to be broken down in the first place. Not only to send Nehemiah, but to send him with his credit card. This is all God, folks. This is all God. And this leads naturally to the next characteristic of a servant. Point number two is that God's servant testifies. God's servant loves to testify. Let's look at what I mean here. After the king says, you can go, Nehemiah, I'll give you everything you need for your task. Nehemiah is, again, well aware that this is all God. This is not his smooth words. This is not the king's sweet heart. This is all God's doing, period. You don't go to the Persian king and ask him to rebuild the walls he commanded to be torn down and have him give you his credit card to do so without it being a work of God. This entire book, not just this passage, this whole book is a testimony. This whole book of Nehemiah is. This is not an autobiography of Nehemiah. <laughs> it's not an autobiography, it's a doxology. It's worship. Nehemiah is saying with this book, look at what my gracious God has done. 
And really, the entire Bible is that way. The whole Bible is that way. If you didn't know, the Bible is not a book about us. It is a book about God. It's a book about God. Now, if you don't understand that, you'll misinterpret virtually every passage you read. The Bible is a book of worship and giving glory to our gracious God. That's exactly what Nehemiah is doing, and that's exactly why he penned these words. He wanted to give glory to his creator. One thing extremely helpful, I think, for us in this book is that there are no miracles in it. There are no miracles in this book. There are no burning bushes, no parting seas, no walking on water. Nothing like that. It's just the quiet hand of the sovereign God working behind the scenes all things out for the council of Israel. This book reminds us that it doesn't have to be a burning bush to be a work of God. God is moving, folks, in every aspect of your life, whether you know it or not. His quiet hand is moving. In your conversation with your friends, in your conversations with your kids, in your choices on where you will live and where you will work, in your heartbreaking circumstances, in your biggest disappointments, the sovereign God is in it all. And Nehemiah is a wonderful reminder of that. God is working through everything that happens to us. And if you are a believer, he is working all things out for your good. Do not mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. Do not mistake the lack of the spectacular for the inactivity of God. His quiet hand is always at work. And God's servant loves to testify to that fact. Okay, let's look at the third characteristic this brings out, and that's God's servant acts. God's servant takes action. Nehemiah, yes, he prayed, he prayed, and he prayed, and, and he planned, and he planned, and he planned for months. But now it is time to come out of the prayer closet and get to work. You can't spend your whole life in the prayer closet. At some point, you've got to get to work. And so here, Nehemiah embarks on the long and strenuous journey to Jerusalem. And in verse 10, we're introduced to a couple of characters who oppose the work of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to meet Opposition from two folks, two fellows named Sanballat and Tobiah. Let's read about them in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, uh, Nehemiah says, So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sad Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Side note, is it not incredible that the king gave Nehemiah horses and soldiers <laughs> to go with him to? Like, this is unbelievable. You know, uh, he, gave him, he not only gave him his credit card, he gave him an army to go with him. Just, just incredible. Anyway, so Sanballat and Tobiah, uh, they live in the neighboring nations around Israel. And they are not fans at all of Israel being rebuilt. They don't want this wall rebuilt. They don't want the temple rebuilt. They don't want the city rebuilt. 
for multiple reasons, but the main reason is likely financial. Financial. You see, one amazing thing about, uh, if you look at the Old Testament, and if you go to Israel, you'll, you'll see this. It's pretty remarkable, but Israel is really centrally located among multiple nations that surround it. And so uh, there's a reason why people throughout history have fought so hard for this land. is because the, it, it's a natural center point for trade routes to go from between nation to nation. So virtually every nation to get to another nation has to pass through Jerusalem, has to pass through Israel. And so you know what that does? It brings a ton of money to Jerusalem. It brings a ton of money to Israel. And so for the last couple hundred years, Israel has been desolate. It's been, it was burned down, torn down, and, and so now obviously the trade routes are not going through there. They've been rerouted. Well, uh, these two fellows realize that if, if Jerusalem is rebuilt, then the trade routes will return. And that's going to hurt their pocketbook. And so they don't like what's happening here at all. And so they decide to set their face against Nehemiah. Uh, and so let's look at um, verses 11 through 16. Let's read that 11 through 16 together. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Verse 13, by night I went... I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work okay so after a long journey nehemiah rides into jerusalem okay uh probably on a donkey uh since riding over rough places by night would require a very sure-footed animal it probably was not a horse it was probably a donkey uh, and then so nehemiah then just carefully inspects all the brokenness and there is a lot of it it's a total mess this is a total mess uh, everything is broken down. He can't even get his donkey through parts of it because there's just, it's just a, a pile of rubble, just rubble. And so it is, this is going to be a, a big, big undertaking for Nehemiah. It is clear there's a lot of work to be done, and it cannot be done alone. But that should be expected, right? No work of God can be done by one person. No work of God, no great rebuild can happen with just one person. It takes a team. Let's look at verses 17 through 18. Uh, verse 17, he says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me they replied let us start building so they began this good work did you notice how nehemiah inspired the people 
to join him in the work. See what he said? How did he inspire them to say yes? I mean, they've been sitting there all this time looking at the rubble. Why do they need Nehemiah to come along and say, hey, this is a problem. Let's rebuild it. How did he inspire them? He said, I told them about the gracious hand of my God. See? Yeah, he showed them the ruined walls, but they'd already seen that. He said, look at the walls. Now, look at my God. Look at our God. Our gracious God has given us this time. The time is now to rebuild. It is the grace of God that motivates the work of God. I'll say that again. It is the grace of God that motivates the work of God. You won't make it long in a rebuild by focusing on the problems. You won't. Only the grace and glory of God will empower you to finish the work. The work God calls us to is often extremely difficult. I imagine the work of rebuilding this wall was ridiculously hard in Jerusalem, especially for those who were in charge of rebuilding the dung gate. <laughs> How'd you like to be in charge of the dung gate? <laughs> this is hard. This is hard, dirty, strenuous work. And so it will be for you to rebuild your relationships or your career or your marriage. For us to rebuild our church, for the world to rebuild after a pandemic. It's hard. If we focus on all the problems, we'll get nowhere. We must focus on our gracious God and his strength and his ability, his power, his wisdom. If we fix our eyes on him, then we will have the strength and the joy to complete the task. Okay, and that brings us to our last point. Our last characteristic is that God's servant trusts. God's servant trusts. Nehemiah here, for the first time, receives criticism and opposition to his work. Now, this is to be expected. There simply cannot be a God-led rebuild of anything without opposition. <laughs> you will face opposition. It's not a matter of if, but when. You will, you will receive opposition. Sanballat and Tobiah show up here uh, in verse 19, along with Geshem, to try to throw a wrench in Nehemiah's plan. Look at verse 19. 19. Uh, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? The enemies of Israel here mocked, ridiculed, and accused Nehemiah, and they would do so throughout this whole book. And you know, that's what our enemy does too. That's what our enemy does too. He uses intimidation, fear, and mockery to get us off course. But whether you know it or not, this is happening to you every day of your life. Every day this is happening. Now, it may not be from flesh and blood people around you like it was here. Sometimes it will be for sure, but it is always happening from the enemy and his whispers in your ear. It's always happening. It's always happening. 
In the book of Revelation, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And so he tells you constantly, you're not qualified. You're a sinner. You're no good. Your marriage is hopeless. Your spouse doesn't love you. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just continually accuse. Yeah, remember when you did this? Yeah, they'll never forgive you for that. This is constantly happening to us, folks. Constantly. And Nehemiah's response to accusation, I think, is so helpful. So helpful for us. Let's look at it. How does Nehemiah respond? Let's look at verse 20. I answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah essentially responds by saying, your accusations are meaningless. Even if they're true, (laughs) they're meaningless. They're meaningless. You see, because I'm not the one who gives the victory. God is the one who gives the victory. He is the builder here, not me. And he will see to it that this project is finished. It ain't me. Come at me with your accusations. It's irrelevant. Whether they're true or false, it just means nothing. God is in control. God is in control, and he will give us the victory. You see, you see how Nehemiah didn't trust in himself? He didn't say, well, look at my plans, guys. You can't beat these plans. No. No. He said, I'm not even relevant here. Your accusations are not even relevant. Only our great God is relevant. And he will finish the work that he's tasked us with. And as we'll see later on in the book, God will indeed give the victory. And then the Old Testament will close with this great picture of a servant of God. And then God will go completely silent for 400 years. Until the story of Nehemiah gives way to a story of an even better servant. As important as Nehemiah's work was in Jerusalem, it pales in comparison to the work this servant will do there. He too will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He too will be mocked, accused, and ridiculed. He too will take action in the face of danger. He too will trust in God alone to bring the victory. He too will testify to the grace of God. And through his crucifixion and his resurrection, he will not rebuild walls. But he will rebuild the relationship between God and men. That sin, our sin, had broken down. He came to build not an earthly city, but a heavenly city. He came to build his church. And it is only because Jesus finished his work that now the gracious hand of God is upon us. Only because Jesus finished the work. It is only because of Jesus. You see, if it wasn't for Jesus, 
and his work, the only thing we would receive from God is wrath for our sin. But on the cross, Christ took God's wrath for us in our place. And now all that's left for us is God's favor and protection as we embark on a rebuild. So yes, we look to Nehemiah and say, these are traits, these are the traits of a servant that I want. It's okay to do that. It's okay to look at Nehemiah and say, yes, these are the traits of a servant that I want. But then we must look to Christ. We look to Christ and then we say, but it is only in you, Lord, that I find the power and the strength to live them out. It is only in Christ. And so, therefore, we close with the wisdom of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. That says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this incredible book that gives us so much wisdom and so much practical leadership that we can, we can look to to emulate. But more than that, Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus and all that he is. As we have no shot, we have no shot to be a true servant like Nehemiah without your son we must have Jesus and so we pray father that as we, we go about the task of a rebuild that we would not just focus on all the problems but that we would focus on your son we would focus on his love and his power and his mercy and his grace thank you thank you Thank you for Jesus, who was the ultimate servant. And through him and his spirit, we too can serve you, Father, and our neighbors well.